Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Crucible Leadership. In organizations, when you try to put all the, the ingredients together of what makes an organization successful, one of those things is trust, right? Trust between leaders and followers, trust within, you know, in peer groups, trust with the organization. And in order to trust you, I have to know you. And if I, if to really know you, you have to be vulnerable and share, you know, parts of yourself that normally you might be willing to kind of keep from others. And so when we did this class, the setup was before the class starts, I asked my students, each student to come up with between one and three crucible moments in their life. And I described them very similarly as you and Warwick did at the outset. And I have those ahead of time. And then in that class, I talk about the importance of it, just you know, very similarly to how Warwick did and their importance in our, in our growth. And then I leave from the front. I share my crucible moments with the class and I ask some of my associate faculty, my associate directors to, to do the same. And then we turn it over to the students to volunteer. So you don't have to volunteer if you don't want to, but boy, in the past couple of years when we've done this, the emotional response that we've gotten from students that have shared their crucible moment has been extremely powerful. A college course on crucibles? You bet. At Seton Hall University, Dr. Brian Price teaches his students the power of vulnerability with a purpose, of sharing some of their most painful experiences in life as a key element of the leadership skills he's imparting to them in the classroom. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, the co-host of the show and the communications director for Crucible Leadership. Dr. Price also shares in this interview with Warwick the lessons on life and leadership he learned on the baseball diamond at West Point as a military officer and as head of Seton Hall's Bucino Leadership Institute. A major theme of the stories he tells and the perspective he offers, the essential roles authenticity and identity play in mustering the resilience to move beyond your crucible. Wow. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being here. I know we're in a bit we're going to talk about what you do at the Pacino Institute at Seton Hall, the you know, Crucible Moments class, which given that, you know, what we do at Crucible Leadership and Beyond the Crucible, it's all about crucibles and crucible moments. I love the fact you have a class called that. So we'll get to that here in a bit. And you've had just an amazing career at West Point and uh, teaching there and um, Army aviation and two, you know, a number of combat tours. And but before we sort of get into all of that, tell us a bit about growing up in uh, Seagirt, New Jersey, and kind of what was your family like, and kind of who was like a young Brian Price, and kind of your family and all. Yeah, sure. So I'm actually reporting live from Seagirt as well because it's. Uh, which is, uh, if you're not familiar, it's a postage stamp. Uh, it's kind of a, a sleepy resort town on the Jersey Shore. And uh, the reason why it's called Gert is because we're surrounded by water. It's almost like a little peninsula where you have water to my north and south. And then the Atlantic Ocean is obviously on our on the east here. And I'm living in the same house that I grew up in. So that's also wow. kind of interesting. <laughs> so I was actually born in Elizabeth, New Jersey. But then when I was less than one, we my family moved down to Seagirt. My father was a sports writer and wrote for the Staten Island Advance for mm. 44 years. My mom was a nurse and I grew up with uh, two brothers, one older and, and one younger. And uh, as we speak right now, they are probably within three quarters of a mile from where I'm sitting. So fantastic opportunity growing up, you know, kind of, uh, as I mentioned, we're on the Jersey shore. So my years were spent playing sports, going to school, and then we had the beach. And as we say here, it's like our lives are other people's vacation because people <laughs> would come to our town to vacation and we get to live here. So that's, it was, it was awesome. Oh, that is so cool. I mean, it was, you know, obviously growing up in a newspaper background, you were never tempted to follow in the family business and be a sports writer or something. Did your dad ever say, Brian, come on, I, you know, I got an in at the Staten Island paper and maybe from there, who knows, you know, the New York Star Ledger or whatever. You ever think of doing that or not really? I did. In fact, in high school, and this might be the first that I think anyone's ever hearing about this. 
Um, while I was playing on the basketball team, I went under a different name in my local town paper and huh. was the beat writer for our team, which it's funny. I went under a, a name from a, my favorite baseball player, which not many people knew named Mickey Hatcher. Oh, huh. yeah. Mickey Hatcher. Yes, for, yes. And I wrote for the Coast Star. And so <laughs> the funny part is, is like you can imagine the access that I had to that team was amazing uh, in terms of the reporting because I was on it. But I had to be careful, you know, if you go back through those files, you know, I, I don't want to write about myself. So it was all about the team and, and those sorts of things. So yeah, um, you had to be careful. It's like, you know, the team played well, but boy, the, the coaching, it was really awful. <laughs> yeah. We could have won that, but the coach was just asleep. Right? <laughs> exactly. He was, who is this Mickey Hatcher guy? <laughs> exactly. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued because Mickey Hatcher was a bit of a character, as I recall, as a baseball player. He was a, he, he played for the Dodgers mostly, and he was a bit of a, I wouldn't call him a flake, but he was a bit of a character. So why was he your favorite player? Just to- Yeah, w- one word, hustle. If you ever saw him play, whenever he would draw a base on balls, he would sprint to first base. Whenever he hit a home home run, he would sprint around the bases and kind mm-hmm. of interesting factoid on him. Only hit two home runs the entire regular season in 1989. Kirk Gibson gets hurt, so he gets to play in the World Series. He gets a starting job and hits two home runs in the World Series. So, wow. but he was a character. But I love I loved him less for the character and more for his hustle. And I emulated that in my play, or at least tried to. That's awesome. So obviously, high school you mentioned three sport athletes. So, which sports were they? Out of curiosity. So I played football, basketball, obviously, since the the beat writer aspect. And then baseball was the sport that I probably excelled in at the most. Awesome. And I know you went on to, you were the co-captain at West Point. So that was a huge deal, baseball. And um, do you ever, I mean, obviously, there's a sports writing angle. Do you ever think, gosh, could I be good enough to kind of get to the next level? Do you ever toy with that about minor leagues or, or more or... So as a kid growing up, I mean, that was always the dream, right? But at my size, I was always undersized. So in my playing days, I was no taller than, I usually say I'm five, seven and a half. I don't even know if, you know, and that half, I don't even know if I'm there yet, but I know I got the most out of my, my playing days and my co-captain, uh, Mike Scaletti, who will probably watch this, did get drafted by the White Sox, but he oh, turned really? it down to continue his Army career. But I felt like I got the most out of my out of my athletic ability. I no regrets. And one of the things that's probably true, right, as you describe your baseball career and your physical stature and the way that you played the game and what you liked about uh, Mickey Hatcher, I imagine the name or the the adjective scrappy was assigned to you at some point <laughs> in your career, right? Yeah. You were a scrappy ball player, but as we talk about overcoming crucibles and moving beyond those failures and those setbacks and what you're teaching to your students now, being scrappy, I've never thought of it in these terms, but being scrappy is a key personality element to overcoming a crucible. Yeah, it's funny, Gary, when you mention this, we all have like different narratives that rattle around in our brain over time. And by the way, just to answer your specific question, if you go back to the media guides during those time periods, I guarantee you're going to find the word scrappy uh, in there. So, so you're, you're, you're spot on, you're spot on. But I don't necessarily classify this as a crucible moment, but it's one of those moments that like is so definitive in my life. And I think to your point, helped shape how I saw myself and how I wanted to perform, not just in sports, but in life. And so I was in eighth grade going into high school and I had, you know, again, multi-sport athlete. We have like a, an advanced version of a, they call it the Babe Ruth league where I come from. Mm -hmm. So there's little league and then you kind of advance to this Babe Ruth league. And I had just been voted uh, MVP of that league. The summer was winding down and I would go and play. One of the great things about my dad was his job as a sports writer was he had a fair amount of flexibility, right? So we could go out and in the summer times and practice and play. And I remember we would go to the high school, the local high school to play. And inside of the high school, they had a Coke machine. So we'd go play in the summertime, you know, it'd be super hot out. We kind of walk into the school. This is pre like school shooting days where you could just like walk into the school and, right. and go, go use the the Coke machine and the janitor was there and the janitor happened to be from a family in our town that uh, was known for athleticism, multiple generations of top athletes. And he would saw me play. So he came in and he said, I've seen you hitting out there with your dad. 
He goes, you look pretty awesome, pr- pretty good. He goes, what grade are you in? You going to what, sixth grade? And I was about to become a freshman. Ooh. Right. And uh. again, it doesn't sound like much to anybody, but like to yeah. me, it was my height and my stature at that time. I said right then and there, I was like, this is how people are going to perceive me whenever I walk into the room. So I'm not going to impress anybody with my, I saw your Tom Brady bit the other day at work, which was great. No <laughs> one's going to fall in love with the scouting report just off of paper. So right. I felt like I had to outwork everybody in whatever organization or group that I was in because I wasn't going to impress you on paper. Yeah. And that's really tough when you know, you're a kid and somebody thinks that you look good for sixth grade and you're about to be a freshman. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, there are some stereotypes people have and they don't really know who you are, but anything that's physical, it's sort of obvious and they size you up and say, okay, therefore he can't do A and B. It's like all Australians play tennis these days and some of these top tennis players for guys, they're like, Six one six two is kind of about the minimum, and then some of these guys are six four six five. The women, it's like five nine five ten. You'd be hard pressed to find a woman who's in the top twenty or the elite that's much smaller than five nine five ten. So if you're some five foot girl growing up, five foot four, I mean, you can have a lot of coaches saying, "Yeah, and I'm not really saying it." You know exactly, and it just feels so unfair. It's like it doesn't capture the the whole Tom Brady thing, which. As everybody knows, uh, his scouting report was just kind of abysmal, you know, not mobile. Um, Weak arm. Yeah. I mean, doesn't throw a tight spiral. I mean, it just, I mean, you would never draft that guy, but it misses the heart. So clearly you had a heart, passion, hustle. I want to talk a bit about before we shift to West Point and Seton Hall. Everybody's had crucibles. I think you mentioned your parents got divorced when you were young and you lost your mom to cancer at 9-11. I mean, clearly around 9-11, that's obviously tough. I mean, how did those things shape you? I mean, some people, like parents getting divorced, you can be angry and it can be, you know, it's always devastating, but some people are able to move on in some fashion and, and some are not, you know. You know, those two moments kind of stick out for me the most in the sense that you know, as a kid, all you know is your nuclear family. And when there's a divorce, that can really shake up a lot of families. And in our, in my case, it did, right? Because my dad moved out of the house, but also my older brother went to go live with him too. So it wasn't just oh, wow. one person moving out. It was two people. But one of the things that I tell people in terms of like why I felt like it was impactful to me was because I saw what love was like. And so my dad literally tried to find the closest place to our house where he, he could move, you know, and again, a resort town. So it's not like there's a ton of apartment complexes around here. It's mostly residential houses. And so he found an apartment that was four blocks away. And so I had the opportunity growing up, even though my parents were divorced to see both of those individuals almost on a Mm -hmm. daily basis to make it as normal for us as possible. And I think when you look at leadership and putting others in front of your own uh, your own interests. I saw my dad do that, you know, cause you know, it wasn't the greatest apartment that he was in, but it was close to us. And that was more important to him than, you know, having some type of, uh, you know, great place to live. So that was kind of telling the second one was, as you mentioned, so my, I ended up losing my mom in October of 2001. And that was also right around the time of September 11th. In fact, when I found out my mom had been sick for, you know, that year prior, but it really started to elevate in September. She was supposed to go into her first bout of chemotherapy on the morning of September 11th. And so when I actually got home from physical training, I was at Fort Hood as a Lieutenant, as a platoon leader at that time. And so we just got done from our morning physical training. I come home and I, my mom is calling and I knew that she was supposed to be going into her chemo that day. So she says, turn on the TV. What are you talking about? Turn on the TV. And obviously that was after the first plane had hit. And then I was on the phone with her for the second plane. The hospitals had actually called her to tell her that her chemotherapy was going to be canceled that morning because our area's hospitals were preparing for the triage. We're close enough to New York City where, you know, they felt like they were going to be feeling the effects of, of this tragedy. And so less than probably three and a half weeks later, you know, she was gone. So it, it, everything accelerated v- very quickly. 
I know there's lots of people out there that have lost loved ones at, you know, various ages. For me at that time, it was, you know, it, it's tough. Like you never want to see your parents in pain. And it's just kind of a wake up call. And maybe the silver lining out of all of that is when you do experience that pain and personal loss, I think you look at the world differently. You know, it's kind of like somebody proverbially like shaking you out of your your rut and the, like the, the lifestyle that you're in and it shakes you to say like this thing we have here called life is is short and you have to take advantage of it. And so, you know, I took both of those lessons, you know, from the divorce, but also from losing my mom and hopefully trying to make that impact, that life of significance that, you know, you talk about in your fantastic book. And I think that's, you know, even though no one wants to go through those tragedies, those things can serve a purpose in your life if you're open to it. Yeah, I mean, it's such a good point. It makes you think, well, every day is precious. You know, you have obviously married and I think you mentioned earlier you have a daughter and um, do you just have one one kid? Yep. Uh, um, she was so perfect. Why, why, why bother? <laughs> <laughs> well said. But it makes you value every hour, every day with your family, with students. Yeah, you, you sort of, you go through a crucible, as we say, and you can either, which is understandable, wallow in them, hide under the covers and be bitter and angry, either at the world or at yourself, if it's through your own mistake and setbacks can be a lot of varieties. Or you can say, yeah, this is pretty awful, but how am I going to move forward? How am I going to maybe use this in some way? Obviously, um, you have empathy for people that have gone through those sorts of things. And and just, you know, yeah, the silver lining, I think, with your dad, that's sort of a remarkable story that, you know, irrespective of how the divorce happened, the fact that he was so dedicated to his family, that he was so close and spent so much time with you, that was something that it's like, even when bad things happen, what's important to you in life, you don't let that go. And that's yep. probably was an incredibly invaluable life lesson that you learned from your dad's actions. It's often we learn as, as much or more from people's actions than their words, right? His life, the way he modeled, you know, love and putting family first in that situation was, it was remarkable, really. I mean, a lot of dads wouldn't do that. They'd say, okay, I'm out of here and off I go, but not yeah, your dad. He completely put, you know, his kids at the forefront and put his entire life to include his social life on the back burner. Another kind of interesting thing is, you know, again, I mentioned the small town. And so my brothers and I, we would play sports all the time. And my dad, again, given his schedule, was willing to be able to go out whenever we wanted to go practice. And so looking through the eyes of like our 2021 lens back then, I'm sure there are tons of people in my town that thought my dad was crazy and maybe demanding that we would go out and play. But the beautiful part is I can't remember one instance in my entire life where my dad, you know, kicked me on the couch and said, Hey, Brian, you got to get out and practice. Let's go. It was always us asking my dad. And he was like, okay. And, you know, going in the sports craze world that we are today, and I have a daughter, obviously we played sports. We talked about that earlier. That was also a gift for me of like, you know, whenever my dad wanted to play with me, he was available, but he was never the one putting guilt or pushing me to get out and practice. So that was another so, life lesson. Yeah, I'm going to shift here to West Point, but just to kind of talk about this for one more beat. What your dad modeled for you, I'm sure that you model for your daughter. Your daughter, you mentioned earlier, is like an elite athlete on you know the top team for 12-year-olds in the country. She's obviously you know one of the top 12-year-old girls in the country. Well, a lot of dads in those circumstances would be like, you got to train, you got to this, you got to that. You know, you could be in the U.S. women's team, you could be in the Olympics, you could be, you could be, and. I'm strongly suspect that you encourage and support, but you're not saying it's 5 a.m. You know, you're working out. Are you? You're probably not that dad. If my wife was listening to this right now, she would say, <laughs> Brian, you better be taking your own medicine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to fight that impulse in order to do that. And I, I'll just be honest. While I think I am not bad in that regard, I feel like my dad was better, you know, and it's something to kind of shoot for, for sure. Yeah. So I want to hear about the Pacino Institute, but tell us a bit about West Point, because obviously, and afterwards, uh, you know, you, you played on the baseball team, co-captained it. I think there were some important lessons you learned about teamwork, probably throughout your whole career, but I'm guessing that might have been the capstone of it, 
Uh, what did you really learn about yourself, about teamwork, just by playing on the baseball team there? Yeah, well, I, I think just to expand it even further, the entire experience at West Point, for those of you that are not familiar, it's essentially a 47-month leadership laboratory. And so from the moment that you you arrive to the moment that you leave, you are consistently learning about yourself all the way. And one aspect of that leadership model, which is pertinent to this conversation, is that it's designed to make you fail at something. Hmm. And the way they do it is very interesting because they give you so much work to do that you no one can possibly do it in a 24-hour period. And so you have to, at a very early age, kind of manage your expectations of what tasks are you going to do well and what tasks are you just not going to. So, for example, you know, the differences between cleaning your room, studying for your chemistry exam and shining your shoes for inspection the next day. And you have you have 45 minutes before lights are out. You got to figure out how to manage that. The other thing I'll say is no matter how skilled you are, no matter what an athlete you are or how academically adept you are, there's going to be something that you fail at. For example, you have to go off the 10 meter platform in the pool. And so there's lots of people, I don't know if you've ever gone off a 10 meter platform before, but uh, even even if you're not scared of heights, (laughs) that can be a significant emotional event. For another kid, it might be chemistry. For another kid, it might be, you know, on the marksmanship range. So what West Point teaches you, and I think the baseball team as well, is even when you do fail, you have to pick yourself back up and then, you know, move forward. And I think that's an especially important lesson for leaders, because I think all too often there's this uh, streak of perfectionism in our society where leaders have to do everything perfect. And when you think about it, the most impactful leaders probably in your lifetime were ones that were authentic and authentic people are vulnerable. And, you know, it's okay to admit if you're not great at something or if you failed at something and then move forward. And so that's one lesson that I think West Point does a great job of teaching. I mean, that that's so great because yes, so often in society, you see people that won't admit their failures that will not apologize and double down, triple down, what have you. But, um, I imagine in your army experience, you like in any organization, there are good leaders, bad leaders, and you know, so-so leaders. It's just part of being human. Were you able to observe leaders that were able to admit that they made mistakes and were wrong, and maybe you were right or others were right? I mean, did you have modeled for you leaders that you thought these are folks that are actually doing it right? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, on average, I don't care what profession you're in, you're going to run into leaders that are good and bad in every profession. And so one of the things that West Point also teaches you is, you know, consider yourself kind of carrying, they call it a kit bag, but good lessons, bad lessons, put them in that bag and reserve for later. But when it comes to servant leadership, which is the kind of model that we try to espouse at at Seton Hall, um, is definitely espoused in the military. I feel like so blessed and fortunate to have had leaders in my, in my orbit, in my network that are some of the best people like on the planet. And of course you can see those things come out in crisis moments because you're in the military, whether you're in combat or, you know, when the stakes are high, that's when you really see people's true colors and to see people that you really trust, respect, um, and look up to, it's been awesome. So, yeah. I mean, it occurs to me in the military, if you've got some stubborn colonel, general that doesn't want to admit failure, I mean, bad things can happen. I mean, I'm not any, you know, I'm not really a military uh, student, but, you know, I think maybe World War One, you know, uh, you had them fighting 19th century battles with full frontal assault against machine guns, which was insanity. It was never yep. going to work, and thousands or maybe millions of people died. But general after general, whether it's, I don't know, French, German, British, um, you know, maybe Americans later, they just kept with the same battle plan. And it's like, this is idiotic. But nobody wants to admit that they're wrong or that they're clueless, and they they haven't been trained in tactics for what was then modern warfare. They've been yep. trained in 19th century cavalry charge tactics when they were you know in their 20s. It's just... It's just mind-blowing. How could you keep doing the same thing and wasting enormous numbers of lives? You just have to think there's a little bit of arrogance, a little bit of, well, I don't want to admit that I don't know what to do here. I haven't been trained to deal with this situation. 
What do we yeah. do? I think one of the phrases that helps manage that kind of aspect of it, and, and by the way, in the military, you know, we're probably one of the most hierarchical <laughs> organizations that there are <laughs> with like, there are, there is a rank structure, but I do believe that they, you know, in certain aspects of the military, they do respect you to speak truth to power and especially in the planning stage. But once their decision has been made, then it's execute. But there's a phrase that I think I gravitated towards when I was in the military, but one that I think is also applicable to whatever profession that you're in. And it's mission first, people always. And so, you know, sometimes when you're in the military, you get asked, like, saw the helicopter pilot. So, you know, what if you, uh, do you go take this very dangerous mission, maybe behind enemy lines where you might have a high likelihood of some of your folks not coming back? And so they say, well, do you do the mission or being the leader, do you take care of your folks and you, you not do the mission? And you do both, right? You accomplish the mission, but you also take care of your people. So mission first, people always is kind of a, a nice, you know, catchphrase that I think is also applicable in, you know, in business and sports and whatever profession that you're, you're exploring. Absolutely. So after West Point, obviously you became a, a army um, helicopter pilot. You did that for a number of years before going to Stanford. So before we get into sort of the, the Stanford and then combating terrorism center, were there any key lessons you learned by being a helicopter pilot and, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and just all of that? Were there sort of life leadership lessons you learned from that, that period? Yeah, I think both of them offered kind of their own different lessons. But as I mentioned earlier, when you are in those situations, you learn a lot about yourself, both good and bad. <laughs> and maybe some things that you're not, you know, super proud of about your own leadership. But I think, so when I was in Afghanistan, for example, as a company commander, I had 106 people that were underneath my charge. And having that sense of care, love, devotion for those people, I don't know, like it, when I talk to people about, actually, this is an interesting thing that we do with our students at, at Seton Hall, which is on their first day in our program, I asked all the students to take out a piece of paper and fill out and say, what is your definition of, of leadership? And when they do that, you know, they can't use Google. I don't give them any primer. I collect all the answers and then I put it into a word cloud. And for the past three years running, I've done this. And the one word that comes out above any other is others. And if I had to use any one word to define leadership, that's what it's all about. It's all about others. And if there's one thing that, you know, leading in combat or being in the military taught me is the importance of others. And so, you know, that type of servant leadership style is kind of in our DNA. And it's what we're also trying to do with our, our folks at, at Seton Hall. One quick side story. I go from being responsible for to 106 people in Afghanistan, you know, weapon on me every single day, you know, flying all over the country. I get back and then within weeks, I'm in Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, which is one of the most beautiful places in the face of the planet. And I went from that environment in Afghanistan to Stanford, where I was only responsible for myself. And in my first meeting with the graduate school people there, I said, I'm here to see so-and-so. And she's like, oh yeah, we'll bring her right out. And she walks out and she's barefoot and her dog is accompanying her. And I was like, it was like culture shock, like, <laughs> but two very high performing organizations, you know, going from the military to Stanford. Again, I feel just very blessed that I had the opportunity to kind of learn in these really interesting leadership laboratories. And before you got to Seton Hall, you spent a number of years at the West Point Combating Center. But I think you mentioned when you first applied to teach there, it didn't work out. But, you know, what was that like? To, I mean, obviously it worked out eventually. What was that like? Was that like, a, you know, how could it not work out? I mean, I think I'm pretty qualified, right? I mean, all the stuff so, you got going on. Yeah, this was really interesting. So I did my uh, my first tour there. So I went to Stanford and after I got the PhD, I, I then started working at West Point in the Department of Social Sciences. And then I went to Iraq. I, got, I deployed to Iraq. When I went to go there was a, a job opportunity that opened back up to become a permanent professor. So West Point is a mix of rotating faculty, you know, that will rotate every couple of years. And then a small segment that is kind of permanent faculty. 
So a permanent faculty job opened up and I applied to it and I thought I was relatively qualified for it. And I went and I interviewed and I thought I crushed the interview. And I don't think I've ever told anybody this story either. So this is two for here, Gary and Warren. Oh, we got exclusives here on Beyond the Crucible. So, so I, I've already given up my pen name of Mickey Hatcher out there. Yeah. The second one is, you know, in, in the military, in the, I don't want to say the real army, but, you know, you don't wear your dress uniform. Also, it's not like the movies, right? You turn on the movies right. and like, you know, they're wearing their, you know, their dress uniform to go eat breakfast yeah. uh, every day. That's not happening. You're wearing your kind of fatigues, your, your battle yeah. dress uniform. And so for this opportunity at West Point, I had to wear my, my dress uniform. Well, the army's got this crazy thing every couple of years where they'll change up uniforms and, you know, ribbons and all this stuff. Yeah. And so when I went to go do this interview, I thought I, I did very well. But a couple of weeks later, I get a, a phone call. It says, hey, you know, you were not selected for this position. And oh, by the way, we noticed that your uniform, your deployment stripes were on the wrong sleeve. And to me, when you talk about like when you when you walk yeah. into the room, that's what people see. This is something that was like not super important to me. It probably should have been. Right. But I had taken my uniform to the military complex where I was stationed at for them to put all the proper accoutrement yeah. and all that stuff yeah. on there. Well, the woman made a mistake and I didn't catch it. And so I don't know if that was the reason why I was not selected, but it was the only piece of feedback that I had gotten. And that was tough to swallow. You know, I don't know if that qualifies as a crucible moment, but that was one where I was like, that was tough to swallow. And then because at the time you'd, you'd be thinking seriously, I hope there was a better reason than I've got my, I'm not lying about my deployment. It's not like I put on a ribbon I didn't deserve, which obviously no. the military would be a serious deal, which I don't think any right-thinking person would ever do. But putting it on the wrong sleeve, I mean, my gosh, think of a well, better reason. Yeah, And there may have been a better one, but humanly speaking, it's easy to go there and say, seriously? you know. But that's never been my mentality work. Like, if anything, I was turning all of it inward on me. You know, my, my thing wasn't, I can't believe they would only focus on that. My thing was just beating myself up over mm -hmm. how could I have not, you know, I should have checked that. I should have. Right. And in the preparation for it. So I, I don't fault them for it. But, right. you know, it was one of those where I was like, man, I thought that was a great opportunity. And as it turned out, you know, life is, is weird how it turns out. An even better opportunity opened up with the Combating well, Terrorism Center. And yeah. Yeah. And then I want to get to see, well, is there anything you want to say about that's relevant to this conversation about your time in the Combat Terrorism Center, about learning about yourself and leadership. There's probably, you've been through a lot, so I don't want to skip anything, but um, no, I, Seton Hall. I think the, the only thing I would say there is the team, it was a very different leadership experience because my team right. was all civilians. There were civilian okay. researchers. And so leading a different type of individual. And then the other component of that opportunity was we did research that was in high demand for senior leaders in our in our military, as Gary mentioned in the in the intro. And so there I was as a, a major and then a lieutenant colonel having to present information to Secretary of Defense, the CIA director. I testified in front of Congress. In all those moments, those are like you've heard of the imposter syndrome, right? Like yeah. I, I was battling that in severe ways. Oh yeah. But, but what I learned about leadership there, I think, which is pertinent to this discussion, is someone told me one time when I came out of a, a meeting with my first, I think it was a four-star general meeting that I had presented at. And I came out and my boss at the time said, how did you, you know, think that went? I, I said it went well. And he pulled me aside. And he said, you know, Brian, the best leaders that are out there, you can tell by the proportion by which they speak in a meeting and the proportion by which they listen. Huh. And by golly, if I didn't kind of think of that every time I was in a room with a senior leader and to see how they operated, that's a pretty doggone good heuristic for, you know, senior leaders is how much are they in transmit mode versus how much are they listening and, and taking in information? It was, it was powerful. Boy, that is a good, that's a very good lesson. So, so what made you decide to leave West Point in the Combating Terrorism Center and found the Bacino Institute at Seton Hall. Because if you're a West Point person, a lot of West Point people will be like, okay, maybe I missed out on that full-time faculty thing, but I kind of want to be here forever. You know, you're West Point, you know, sort of 
for life. It's funny, as some listeners know, it's I've never been in the military and I'm from Australia, but I live in Annapolis, which is the home of that other place, the Naval <laughs> 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 Academy. So, you know, I noticed that you put in, in, at least in the bio on Seton Hall, it says West Point, the world's premier leadership development institution. It may well be. I don't know what the what the Navy folks think, but that's another story. But so what made you want leave West Point and found the, the Bacino Institute at Seton Hall? Because that's a, a huge decision. Yeah, it was. Uh, thankfully, it was made for by my wife. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so uh, I had always you know, told my wife that if she would kind of follow me around for my first 20 years, uh, in the army, by the way, that's when the time when you can become eligible for a pension, um, in right. the military. And I said, you know, once I hit 20 years, then you can kind of get, you know, full veto power over whether I stay or go. I thought she had forgotten about that, but apparently, <laughs> apparently not. She didn't. So that was the decision. But to me, the decision was like, I had spent the bulk of my professional career going after and studying bad leaders and terrorist group mm. leaders. So right. I wrote, I wrote a book called targeting top terrorists, which was published by, uh, Columbia University Press. And so that was my dissertation. That was my, wow. that was my research, yeah. but that can be really depressing work. And I wanted, I, I loved leadership and I felt like what a great way, instead of studying and going after bad leadership, can I help develop the next generation of good leaders? And so it was a tough decision because I love my West Point team and my combating terrorism center team. But it was a easy decision from a professional and a gratification. And, and as you look back, you're probably gratified you made that decision. Maybe gratified you didn't get because if you got full tenure at West Point, that would have been a lot tougher decision, you know, well, or it might have been to leave. Yeah, no, I mean, I so I, I could have stayed at West Point until I, re- okay. I, I so retired. That, okay, that, that was, wasn't an issue. But it's interesting, yeah. But it shifting from studying bad leaders, as you put it, but never thought about it that way to hopefully instilling young leaders who will become good leaders. You know, one of the one of the, the most terrible things is if you study quote unquote bad or evil leaders, but they might be using good leadership tactics. So it's like using good leadership tactics for bad or for evil. That's got to be the ultimate depressing thing. You know, it's one thing if they're hopeless, but when they're not hopeless and not, unfortunately, some evil people or some badly, some leaders of uh, poor character, they understand a bit about how to motivate people. You know, I think that's you're exactly right. You know, Osama bin Laden for however evil you think he is. And I'm, I sign me up for <laughs> the person that thinks he's, he's evil. He demonstrated a lot of servant leadership. And, you know, one of the reasons why I made him so, you know, why he had so many followers and was so, so impactful. I don't buy into his, his reasons, but in terms of leadership, he was willing to sacrifice for his cause and be there for his people. So, yeah, but it, it's so much funner, <laughs> more fun working with, uh, you know, making people good leaders as opposed so, to. So, so talk a bit ones. about the Pacino Institute in particular. I love this course. You have crucible moments. What was really on your heart when you came to found the Pacino Leadership Institute? What was the vision you had for, you know, helping undergraduates learn about leadership? So they had a previous organization that did leadership in the business school, which is not uncommon okay. for a lot of universities. That's where leadership sits. But the university made a decision in the year that I arrived to expand that program. So it was the entire university as opposed to just the business school. And I think one of the things that makes our program unique, particularly in today's world, is the fact that we are teaching leaders how to be leaders in an interdisciplinary environment. So it's not just business school kids. I have a poet sitting next to the education person, sit next to the diplomat, sit next to the scientist. And learning about leadership in a four-year program, I think is important to get that interdisciplinary feel because that's where the world is moving. You know, we're, we're moving out of our silos and we're moving more towards small teams of diverse groups. And that's one of the things that we're, we're trying to do there. Hmm. And it's true, I would imagine, as you're thinking on this crucible leadership course of study your athletic experience your your experience on teams because teams i've been on teams sports teams i was a baseball player too i was never described as scrappy i was the <laughs> i was the fat kid who caught i was the fat kid catcher in the in the bad news bears but but teamwork 
on sports teams, sharing successes, sharing failure builds camaraderie and confidence. I suspect that was in the, at least in the back of your mind, perhaps the forefront of your mind when you decided to talk about crucible experiences with your students. Yeah, I, you're 100% right, Gary. And it, whether you take that from the sports world, you could say the same thing in the military. But the reason why I had that course, I think in organizations, when you try to put all the, the ingredients together of what makes an organization successful, one of those things is trust, right? Trust between leaders and followers, trust within, you know, in peer groups, trust with the organization. And in order to trust you, I have to know you. And if I, if to really know you, you have to be vulnerable and share, you know, parts of yourself that normally you might be willing to kind of keep from others. And so when we did this class, the setup was before the class starts, I asked my students, each student to come up with between one and three crucible moments in their life. And I described them very similarly as you and Warwick did at the outset. And I have those ahead of time. And then in that class, I talk about the importance of it, just, you know, very similarly to how Warwick did and their, their importance in our, in our growth. And then I leave from the front. I share my crucible moments with the class and I ask some of my associate faculty, my associate directors to, to do the same. And then we turn it over to the students to volunteer. So you don't have to volunteer if you don't want to. But boy, the past couple of years when we've done this, the emotional response that we've gotten from students that have shared their crucible moment has been extremely powerful. I think it's powerful for them because it's a cathartic moment of getting this off their chest and sharing you know, something that they haven't done with others. But it also empowers them that, you know, when they do that afterwards, you see the kind of stress relief, but also the pride that they have that they were able to get through something very tragic, meaningful, difficult. And yet I think it's, there's another side of it, too, which is the students that are in the audience that are hearing these experiences, because some of those 18 year olds, and I'm happy about this, haven't experienced that life trauma yet. And so the fact that they are seeing one of their fellow students get up and share this experience where they've endured this thing and have emerged stronger on the other side, I think is important for them to hear because in their minds, they go, you know what, this is going to happen to me eventually. And when I do have that moment, I can be just as strong as this other student. And so it's a really powerful, powerful lesson. And that's such an important point because at 18, you know, obviously you had some experiences with, you know, divorce, and obviously, I guess you weren't 18, but later on your mother dying. But a lot of kids these days, they will have had crucible experiences. But even if they, they haven't, life is not easy. They will. I can't think of anybody that's lived on this earth that hasn't gone through a tough experience at some point. It's sort of inevitable. Life is not easy. Things will happen at home and the workplace. And so, yeah, just being prepared. I mean, one of the phrases, I know Brene Brown talks a lot about vulnerability. One of the phrases that I love that we've begun talking about is vulnerability for a purpose. And I'm sure you would talk about this with your students. It's not always like with a bunch of coworkers, let me tell you about every dumb thing I did in school, whether it's drugs or whatever, that has no relationship to the situation or what people are going through. That's just sharing every dumb thing you did is, you know, can be useful, but not always. But maybe if you're leading a bunch of folks in the military, maybe you're saying, yep, first time I led a, you know, a company of 10 people as a lieutenant, I was scared stiff, I couldn't sleep that night. Or, you know, I figured the non-commissioned, you know, folks, the sergeants knew way more than I did. And but, you know, over time, I realized, okay, just day at a time, I, I learned more, got a bit more confidence. I mean, that's the kind of thing, you know, just not saying you're in that position, but I'm sure it's somewhat common for new commanders. Sharing that with other newly admitted lieutenants, well, that's vulnerability for a purpose because it's like, okay, gee, if somebody that I respect like Brian Price or whoever it is was can be nervous, I guess it's okay to be admit that I'm nervous too. I mean, does that kind of make sense? You know, it's... Yeah. And I, I love, I'm a huge fan of Brene Brown too. And when she talks about vulnerability, vulnerability as a purpose, you know, I think when it to tie it into leadership, you need to be vulnerable. If you're vulnerable, you're seen as authentic right? and authentic leaders are trusted. And the, you know, to be an effective leader, you need to be trusted and that then you can be effective. 
so I think it, it all ties all ties together for sure. Absolutely, and, you know, and part of it with crucible moments is part of its vulnerability. Uh, and one of the other things I find is, and I'm sure you found this with your students, is when students share. Sometimes, let's say it's a mistake they've made. They think, well, if other people knew how stupid I was, they'll judge me and I'll be shunned. Right, as a young 18-year-old or 19-year-old, you're th- absolutely thinking that. I mean, you're thinking about that later. But when other people kind of slap you on the back, give you a hug or whatever, and say, "Hey, I was," that was amazing. You did that. It's like, well, you're not judging me. I'm not ostracized. Yeah. That's also, and I'm sure you've seen that, right? It's like because sure. that's what you think. If I share this, I'll be rejected. You know, right. I'll be a pariah or something. Especially in this kind of Instagram happy, you know, environment right, that yeah. we have where it's you have to put on these airs in order to show everybody that everything is is fine. When in reality, you know, my analogy for this is and I, I coach business leaders outside of, uh, of West Point, too. You know, it's the duck, right? Like when you look on top and you look on Instagram, you know, the duck is kind of moving gracefully through the water. But right. if you had that underwater camera of said duck man, that thing is like churning the, the, the water, the water's all, you know, muddy and, and churned up. And so I, I think people should not be afraid to, to show that underwater view of what's going on in their life. And particularly when it comes to mental health, you know, when you need help, get it in this world, in this country, I don't know how it is in, in Australia, but yeah. I'm interested in your thoughts in terms of the comparison. Like when I coach athletes, if they have a sprained ankle, they yeah. go to the doctor for the sprained ankle right. in this country. You know, if you have a mental health problem, you know, there's still like this stigma attached. I think it's getting better, but I don't think we're yeah. there yet. No, I think I know there's some elite cricket players. I'll probably get it wrong here, but I think it may be Glenn Maxwell. But there's one of these folks that has unbelievable talent, but does struggle with this. And then he says, look, I'm sorry, I can't play for Australia or, you know, some elite team right now because I, I just need to take some time off. And that's accepted. And, you know, they go through protocols and. So that's great, which is important. The other aspect of crucible moments is vulnerability, but it's demonstrating to young folks that it's not the end of your story, as, as we always say in crucible leadership. You can learn from that. If it's your mistake, learn from your mistakes. Even if it's not, okay, what? Maybe I can help people who are survivors of this, whether it's cancer or whatever. Maybe I can use that to serve others. So it's seeing crucible can be an opportunity for a life's mission, a life's calling can come out of that. And I'm sure that's probably part of your discussions, I imagine, with your students. You said something on our podcast that stuck with me, and I'll, I'll probably butcher it, I'll paraphrase you, and if I screwed up, you can um, fix it work. <laughs> it was kind of like your crucible moment or your worst day doesn't define who you are. And right. to me, that is powerful because and when I work with athletes and business leaders, I try to decouple what they do with their identity, right? Yeah. So when I work with um, elite athletes on the mental game, you know, oftentimes they will self-describe themselves as, you know, I'm Sally the swimmer. Mm-hmm. And I say, okay, like that's a recipe for, you know, some self-esteem and some identity issues down the road. I said, you're Sally, the awesome kid, the awesome daughter, the awesome everything who also happens to swim. But you can do some other things in your life. And when you I think it's important to kind of decouple what you do with your identity in order for both your sanity, but also your self-esteem. And as a leader, because you are going to have those bad days. But like you said, don't let those bad days define you. And that's so key. Boy, that's the whole issue of identity. I've been thinking a lot about that recently. But I'm sure you probably have, I would guess, conversations with your daughter. I mean, she is one of the elite soccer players of her age. She might be on the US team one day, might be in the Olympic team, or maybe not. But, you know, try and instill in her, she's not defined by her soccer ability. You're happy for her, but she is defined by who she is as a person. I'm sure you, I mean, this is on your heart and mind. I got to believe, I don't know whether it's a conversation, but you've had at least some helping not get too wrapped up in it, because there is going to be some people they're going to say, you know what? You're one of the best players I've ever seen. I've been watching young people for 20 years and you're like incredible, right? You, they're trying to be helpful, but that's not always so helpful when people tell that, tell you that. You know what I mean? It's funny. You know, and first off, if you look at the statistics, it's likely that she's not going to be any of those things, right? I mean, just based off of the numbers. 
But this is an area where I wrote a blog piece about this and I'm interested in your thoughts. I was actually hoping that she would have a failure moment earlier in her life. (laughs) Because, I mean, look, she's a good player, but she's on a fantastic team. The team is ridiculous. But I would prefer at some point, you know, not to say that I want her crucible moment to arrive earlier in life than later. But if you if you go through life and you don't suffer any type of adversity, how do you react? And this would be a great research project to look at in terms of what are people more successful or less successful based off of when is that crucible moment happen in their life? Like, would you have would you have been the same if you were? 45 as opposed to you know when your crucible moment happened i don't know yeah i never thought about that before but that's an insightful point i was probably in some ways fortunate that the whole thing well the takeover happened of the family media business when i was 26 and that ended by the time i was was 30 but yeah i mean certainly the whole issues of identity growing up because i unfortunately you know worked hard got good grades at school Oxford, Harvard Business School. I, you know, I was sort of. I'm not going to be this young, dilettante, wealthy kid. I'm going to work hard, and uh, yeah, I mean, sort of. I wouldn't call myself scrappy. I'm not a hustler in the sense of, I'm a <laughs> contemplative person. But in terms of determination and perseverance, I'm ex- very, if not extremely, high. And so, yeah, that didn't help. All these expectations. You could be one of the great Fairfaxes. You could have this huge impact for your nation. I mean. And so once when it ended, it's like, huh, well, that's not going to happen. I'm never going to achieve anything no matter what I do that is at the level that I might have achieved. So that's where you really got to do some serious soul work and say, where is my identity? Is it being a Fairfax in charge of this, you know, mammoth media organization or as a person of faith? Is it in, you know, what God thinks of me? Is it in more spiritual, eternal? So, yeah, I had some years to figure that out. But identity, a huge thing. So... So, gentlemen, we are in a hover at the moment. (laughs) But we are descending, and we will soon put the skids down on the helipad. Before we do that, I know Warwick wants to ask some questions about the things that you tell your students when they talk about their crucibles or how they get through them, because they'll be very applicable, Brian, to our listeners. But before we get to that question, let me, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the opportunity to tell listeners how they can find out more about you, more about the Bacino School, uh, about anything that you've talked about here. How can they learn more about Brian Price and what you do? Yeah, sure. So uh, almost all my social media is under uh, Top Metal Game. So uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. For the Bacino Leadership Institute, you can get a hold of us at www.shu.edu backslash leadership. And then on Twitter, it's at Shoe Leadership. And Instagram, it's at Bucino Leaders. And we will put those in the show notes, listeners, so you can see them written out. Just as we close here, I know one of the things you mentioned in advance, we've, we've talked actually quite about a lot of these things. There are some key principles that you advocate. And we've, I think we've covered actually a number of them, but just want to give you a chance to explore any of these further. You talk about the ability to reframe failure, overcoming imposter syndrome, becoming aware of negative narratives, proper goal setting, process over outcome, identity questions. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we've covered. Any of those you want to, as we close, just really touch on a bit for our listeners. Yeah, I think one that is kind of near and dear to my heart, and it just keeps popping up over and over, is kind of a combination of that imposter syndrome and those narratives that I I told you about. In the past week and a half, and I just had a recent post on this as well, I coached a former major league baseball pitcher who is now in the corporate world. I've coached a gymnast who is at the top of her game. I've coached a CEO that went from nothing in his family and has brought up, you know, he's the CEO of his own internationally known organization now. And it's funny when you coach these people, one of the consistent themes that emerges through that is at some level, there's a confidence issue. And those confidence issues are usually born out of this thing that we call the imposter syndrome, where you feel like you're not worthy of your promotion or whatever things are happening positively in your life, or it's they're based off of these narratives, oftentimes that are formed at very young ages. 
You know, when I talked to this, this one person, you know, not to give her age away, but she's around my age, we'll say. And yet she thought back to a moment when she was 13 years old, when somebody said something to her and these things rattle around in our heads, but worse, they influence or negatively influence your ability to act. And I think that's the most damaging thing. And I told an individual that is in the corporate world, I said, can you imagine if you were able to do coaching for every person in your organization and get to the root causes of the, either that narrative or that imposter syndrome, how much more productive, how much happier, how much more effective both that individual and the organization would be? I think that's where the, the secrets lie. And it doesn't matter, like oftentimes why this is so frustrating for both individuals and organizations is your feelings about your narrative or your suffering under the imposter syndrome is usually not rational. You know, one of the things I try to do with my, with my clients is to say, look at all the areas in your life where you have succeeded. And all you want to do is focus on that area where you failed or stumbled. And I don't know, I just think that that's like, if we could unlock that both as, you know, an organization, but as a country, I think we'd be happier and more productive because people are holding back. They're playing small and for no rational reasons. Well, well said. You know, it's interesting what you said there, Brian, about that woman with the, the 13-year-old experience. One of the things we've discovered on this show, this is the 58th episode that we've done. And one of the things that keeps coming up, and you actually alluded it to it earlier in the episode, it was sort of a drive-by moment, but you were talking about when you were a, about to be a freshman, I think, and someone thought you were in sixth grade when they saw your stature. And, and that, I mean, you're not a freshman anymore, but that's still the forefront of your brain. When you got asked that question, you talked about it. And we've discovered so many people on this show whose crucible moments or one of their crucible moments date back to single digits or early you know, teenage years. Those things that set up what you describe, what others describe as the imposter syndrome. And those things are hard to outrun. And one of the one of the goals of what Crucible Leadership does is to help you learn and leverage those things so that you can then apply them, learn the lessons of them, and move beyond the Crucible so you can lead a life of significance. Warwick, any final words you want to leave our listeners with before I wrap? Thank you so much, Brian, for being here. I mean, you've served our country. Uh, you've uh, helped students at West Point. You're now working with students at Seton Hall and um, other athletes and folks in business and really teaching them about what true leadership is, what servant leadership is, uh, what vulnerability for a purpose is, what, you know, um, none of us are perfect, getting over the whole imposter syndrome. I mean, that is really important, almost, I'd say, soul work. To be really effective leaders, you've got to start at the root, and that's often at a soul level. You know, you've got a good foundation at a soul self-image level. You can be so much more effective and compassionate. You have a bunch of weeds or uh, some issues at a soul level. You'll find it very difficult to care for other people. So you're really dealing with what I'd call soul work, both with the athletes and the business folks you work with, as well as the students. I don't know whether they quite see it that way but you're setting that solid foundation that then enables them to be fantastic leaders that make a difference in this country and beyond. So thank you for the work that you do. Oh, thanks. And it's, it's always awesome to wake up every morning with those kind of challenges. And I hope I continue to have those opportunities and thanks for, you know, what you've done with this podcast and your book, you know, and sharing your experiences. Cause I think that's where, you know, uh, this is a topic that you're bringing up in terms of crucible leadership that I think is going to move the needle for sure. That is the second time, listener, that Brian Price, our guest today, has said the word book. Um, I am remiss in that the first time Brian said the word book, I didn't say the book Crucible Leadership comes out by Warwick in the fall. We actually have right now October 19th as an on-sale date on Amazon. So the book is called Crucible Leadership, Embrace Your Trials to Lead a Life of Significance. So I've just embarrassed Warwick, but it is, to Brian's point, really encapsulates all of what we try to do here on Beyond the Crucible, and even more so what Crucible Leadership tries to do. 
speaking of Beyond the Crucible, until we are again together, listener, Warwick and I have a little bit of a favor to ask you, and that is this. On the podcast app that you're listening to the show right now, click, push the button, whatever you need to do to subscribe. That would be a real great help for us in that it helps us share it with more people, interviews like this one with Brian, but it also uh, will help make sure that you don't miss one of these episodes where we talk about how to move beyond your crucible. So until that next time that we are together, always remember this, and we've talked about it from the opening bell of this show, that is your crucible experiences are painful, they're real. Whether you know the name crucible experience or not, you know what it feels like to go through if you've been through one. They're painful, they're real, but this is the great news. They're not the end of your story. As we've talked about here with Brian, as Warwick talks about every week on the show, those moments, they're not the end of your story. They can be the start of a brand new story, the best story, because as you learn the lessons of them, as you apply those lessons and move forward, where you end up headed, the destination you end up getting to, where your helicopter lands is at a life of significance.